you know, running it twice is, is eliminating these uh, recreational players faster. And it's easy to see, instead of running it twice, why don't, why don't you run it 20 times? If you run it, run it 20 times, there'll be almost no variance on, on the results. Hi, it's Ranchix. The following is my conversation with Mason Malmuth. He is the founder of 2 Plus 2 Publishing Company, author of over a dozen books on poker and gambling. His contribution to poker community over the years is invaluable. And this time we talk about his new book, which is about card rooms and what can casino staff and players do to make the playing experience better, games more sustainable and in the long run more profitable. As a poker player, I thoroughly enjoyed the read. It's full of actionable ideas applying to live poker and even online games. And while reading it, I changed my stance on running it twice in the live games, which I thought I'd never do. Um, well, there's plenty more to this conversation. Check out the timestamps in the description if you want an overview. And now, please enjoy the conversation with Mason Malmuth. Yeah, Mason, uh, pleasure to have you on for a second time. Thank you for making the time. Oh, it's good to be back. I enjoyed our first talk, and yeah, it looks just, like this talk will be just as just as good. I hope so. And uh, you know, it looks like with your productivity, with uh, writing several books in quick succession, we we're we're never run out of uh, opportunities to meet and and have a conversation. Now, this time we're going to talk about your new book. Um, which came out very recently, right? Um, it's about card rooms, everything bad and how to make them better. Um, really nice title. And uh, maybe let's start with why write this book? How did you get this idea? How, how did that happen? Well, I have a friend who I talk poker with. And, and every now and then we start talking about how bad these card rooms are run. So, so I said to him, you know, she just, just should do a little book on this. And to my surprise, he was very, very enthusiastic. So I started uh, putting the book together or putting some ideas together. And then I went on our website and I started a, a thread where I said, well, this is something I'm, I'm going to try to do. Anybody have any input? And the input was overwhelming. And so it seems like I unexpectedly sort of hit a nerve. Now, a lot of people are really, really unhappy with a lot of the things done in the poker rooms. Mm -hmm. So that, that's how the book, book came about. And, uh, you know, I would put the, what I had up for a table of contents at, at, at a point in time, and people would, would comment, make all sorts of suggestions and, uh, in, in the book. There's a lot. There's a number of quotes uh, from some of our posters right out of that thread, as they pointed out some things that, that were worthwhile. So that, that, that's how the, the book came about. Uh, another thing that's interesting is I worked for years as a professional statistician. Even though my degrees are in math, I always kind of worked more on the statistical side. And I sort of live in a, in a little bit of a statistical and a probabilistic world, much more so than typical people. Mm -hmm. And I just see this stuff everywhere. And it was very clear to me that, you know, it's been this way for a long time, that, that one of the major problems in poker rooms is that poker is a game that's based on uh, statistical theory and probability theory. 
And you need to understand that if you're going to be running poker games. And most poker room managers, you know, they don't have that background. And so because of that, that they make all sorts of mistakes. And these mistakes have the effect of uh, assuring that there won't be as many poker games as there should be in the future. Mm-hmm. And so that, 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 that's basically where this book is coming from and what it's trying to accomplish. And it's trying to lay down some guidelines and uh, increase understanding of, of what poker room managers and the players need to do so that the game of poker is not only good today, but it, but it's good a week from now or a month from now or, or years from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that you addressed all sides uh, of all the parties involved, basically, in this book. Because you, you talk about the, the room managers, the poker players, the dealers, uh, the, the chip runners, you know, the, the brushes, basically everybody involved because... Obviously, the whole experience of playing poker comes about from from everybody doing their job. And oftentimes, the regulations or the casino rules, poker room rules, are against the best long-term interests of the players. And maybe let's start with talking about the players and what do you think are some... Let let me just interject a a thought there. Uh, What the book tries to argue is, is that those things which are for the best long-term interest of the players are also for the best long-term interest of the poker room itself mm-hmm. and, yeah. and the games itself. That, that, that's, that, that, that's, I think, is, is part of the key to this book is that all these things that you just mentioned actually work together mm-hmm. in, in a well-functioning poker room. And when the poker room is not well-functioning, one of the things that, that quickly happens is you get an adversarial relationship between players and management. And that will hurt the poker room in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And let's start with talking about the players and the mistakes that the players make for their, well, basically hurting their own long-term future in the business. Well, you can divide the players into into a couple of groups. First, you have the recreational players. And then you have the, uh, the regular players. And a subset of the regular players would, would, would be the, the strong, uh, winning uh, professional players. And uh, the typical professional player, if he could change certain rules so he won at a higher win rate today, he would want to do that. He doesn't want to win at $30 an hour. He would like to win at $50 an hour. And in in higher stakes games, it's the same uh, idea. Instead of winning at 200 an hour, he'd like to win at 300 an hour. The problem is, if he pushes that number up too high, he'll bankrupt the recreational players too quickly. And this, of course, brings us to to one of the key key things in the book is what, what I call a proper balance of luck and skill. And try to put that it's a statistical concept but putting it in english it means that you as a player you have an expectation if you're a winning player it would be your win rate if you're a losing player it'd be like your loss rate but there's also variance on there and you can look at variance as the measurement of short-term luck in the game and if things are balanced right we feel that uh 
In a typical uh, four-hour session, a strong player should win two out of three of those, but he's going to lose one, 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 one out of three. While the moderately weak uh, recreational player will win one out of three, and that one out of three is often enough to keep him playing. If you up the win rates for the uh, professional type players, so that the recreational players, instead of winning one out of three, let's say they now win one out of 10, they're gonna quit playing. Hmm. They're not gonna be able to think back to those nice nights where they had their nice big wins, or at least earlier in the session when they were ahead. And you know, a great example of this just happened. And uh, it was the head-up match between Doug Polk and uh, Daniel Negrano. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug Polk was a GTO expert, and you know, Negrano was obviously not. So the Doug had a, had a pretty big advantage. But it, an interesting thing about that match was at the, the halfway point, the, the person who was behind had the option to opt out if he didn't want to play anymore. And... So at the halfway point, I think Doug was ahead six or seven hundred thousand. And if he would have won every session and been ahead by that exact same amount, I doubt if the match would have continued. Mm-hmm. But Negrano was able to have some nice wins in there, and that's the sort of thing that will keep the, the recreational type player uh, continuing to play. And so that that that's just and anyone in who's curious about this point where it comes from that, that that's just a very good example of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. I mean, you're very right that if every session went against him, there's no way he continues, but then, so which are the components of the balance between luck and skill? Well, you have to look at, at the poker game and, and how it works. Uh, you there's 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 a number of things that you can do uh, in in a particular poker game. Uh, for example, in No Limit Hold'em, you can add Annie's to the game, which 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 would add more, which would increase the luck factor. So if it looked like the the very best players are just winning too too often, and uh, the games are starting to choke themselves off, then uh, you, you, and is, is is one thing to consider, and and that brings up an interesting point. Uh, in Las Vegas, you know where, where I live, there's a lot, a great many you know no limit hold'em games, but almost all of them are now fairly small stakes. They're, they're either the, the one two no limit hold'em with a usually with a five dollar button straddle they allow, or the one three no limit hold'em that that doesn't allow the uh, button straddle and which brings up the, the other point even in those games you can have winning players even though those the games are small and, and the rake is very high in those games so the winning players they they become very important and, and this includes the regular players and when i say winning player it might be somebody who wins one dollar a year but but th- that technically makes them a winning player but those players are there to help start games and keep games going. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if you get games where no one wins anymore, you, you run into basically the same problem in that the, the game will, will collapse in time. And 
good example of that are very small stake limit holding games. They're disappearing. I know in the Bellagio poker room, the smallest limit hold'em game they now have is 2040. And they now have more 4080 games than they have 2040 games. And if you look at a, a well-functioning poker room, it, the games sort of form a pyramid with lots of small games on the bottom of the pyramid. And, uh, you know, the, the middle stake games, there are fewer, fewer of those than the small games. And then the high stake games are even, even less of those. But what's happening in limit hold'em now is the the small games are are being wiped out, and that's because, at least in my opinion, that's because the rake in these games is now so high that no one's really winning at them anymore. Uh, just 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 to uh, clarify, I do believe that expert limit hold'em players would beat like a three six or a four eight limit hold'em game, but. If you're good enough to beat one of those games with, with, with the uh, rake that's that's available today, why would you be playing it? You, you, you'd be playing a higher stakes game. So it's leaving these games with with no uh, basically no regular players. So the games are having trouble starting and 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 they're not continuing. So so the the best example I see is the Bellagio, where the smallest uh, limit hold'em game is twenty forty. And I remember, you know, you go back a number of years, you had all sorts of games smaller than that. Yeah, well, also, there's a factor that online games for the smaller stacks are just way more accessible. And it's much easier for people to play on their mobile phone, um, on a computer, which obviously is not the same in terms of experience for the recreational players, because a lot of them just go for the social aspect, go to meet their buddies in the casino, go hang out, you know, all, all the usual right, stuff. That's right. Yeah. Also, in uh, you know, on the internet, you can play, you can multi-table, mm -hmm. and so so by multi-tabling, you don't if you have a very small win rate per game, but all the tables add up. You you now have a reasonably decent win rate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, though. As as you said, you need the winning players to be around in the casino to start the games, and the winning players are just not interested in starting those really small games. And whenever they get a chance to get a recreational player to join a game, they actually prefer him to join at the higher stakes because obviously the win rate's higher, which in the long term is obviously not great because chances are this, this person not coming back anytime soon because uh... well it, th that's absolutely correct but in addition by having smaller games players do begin to graduate from the smaller games mm -hmm. in other words you, you might become a regular player with a small win rate in one of these small games and now you move up to a, a higher stakes games where the players are tougher and now all of a sudden you went kind of from a regular player to a recreational player. Mm. And uh, that's, that's something that's actually very good for, uh, for the poker games. And it's very good for the, you know, the professional type players. And then when these people do, they don't do that well, they can move back down and start playing their smaller game again and, and, and repeat the cycle. Mm. And I'm thinking, 
which is something you've mentioned in the book about the importance of having a good rail, a thought through rail, so that people can actually go and enjoy the experience of watching the games, but selecting perhaps the middle stakes games there so that you know it's not too high it's not too intimidating for people to watch and it's not too low so that it's boring if that is thought through properly then having as many games as possible and and creating this buzz in the poker room that's definitely a big plus but then when we see what happens in a lot of casinos the poker room is basically somewhere in a dark corner and uh, it doesn't in 1989, the Mirage opened, the Mirage Hotel and Casino. And they put the poker room right in the center of the casino. And it had this, the strongest rail I've ever seen. I mean, that rail was just packed with people watching poker games. And, and that's really where, where this, this idea came from, is that I began to realize that these people on the rail watching the poker games, many of them were getting attracted into the poker room. Now, unfortunately, poker room managers can't always do much about where the poker room's located. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just located where it's located, and that's a decision made by uh, casino executives. But wherever the poker room is located, the rail should be utilized as, as, as best as it can. And so what I was saying in the book is that if you put very small stakes games on the rail, an example today would be like these uh, one, two, or one, three, no limit hold'em games. Uh, they're not really that interesting to watch because so many of the pots are, are just a few dollars and the hands over. On the other hand, if, if you put very, very high stake game on the rail, that would draw a crowd, but I think it would intimidate a lot of, a lot of these people, mm-hmm. you know, who, who've never really played much poker before. So the idea of a game is, is, is a game that would be in between those two. So like a 2-5 no-limit game or even a 5-10 no-limit game would probably be a much better game to put on a rail than, than a smaller game or a higher game. Because now you'd have nice-sized pots, with that, which I don't think would intimidate most of the customers. I guess this can vary some from casino to casino, but... Uh, the, that that was the idea behind that mm. is take advantage of the rail and, and use it to uh, attract players, you know, who are just curious about poker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I really agree with you on the point. Uh, not only how important it would be, but also selecting the middle of middle stakes games. And- right, and, and, and another point made in the book is. Mm-hmm you know, put the tables more parallel to the rail as opposed to being perpendicular to the rail. That way people can get a good view uh, of what's going on. Mm. Yeah. And another thing which probably the the high stakes games shouldn't be at the rail is uh, the players at the high stakes games probably don't appreciate being railed that much i know for myself i actually hate when you know you have a lot of money at the table and you have to second guess all the time who's looking over your shoulder why why are people walking around all, all that stuff because at some point you know the incentives for people to take advantage of you are, are just way too high and yeah, that, that, that's a that's a valid point 
That's, that's another reason not to put the high stakes game on, on the rail. Of course, as a expert poker player, you're, you're supposed to know how to look at your cards so that of you're course, the only yeah. one who sees them. But it, it doesn't mean that somebody doesn't get a glimpse here and there. Yeah. Well, and even, from, even if they don't, it's just something that you always keep in the back of your mind that you have to be careful and you have to. And, and also, as an expert player, you. Of course, you know how to look at your cards so that nobody, even person standing behind you, can uh, can take a look at your cards. That's good. But uh, in a regular game, you're going to have some more recreational players who are not very good at that thing. And I wouldn't want them, uh, you know, people to take advantage of them in, in any way. That, that would be... That would well, be that is nice. mentioned in the book. It's in a different section, but there, there's a, a spot there where it says the... Uh, you know, you know, the dealers, that's that's a function of, that the dealers can do. They can tell mm -hmm. somebody who, who's clearly uh, a recreational type player who's fairly new to poker, you know, you know, hold, hold, hold your cards so that you're the only one who sees them. Yeah. And that's actually something I've never experienced in a casino. I've never heard or saw a dealer point out you should protect your cards, you should look at them uh, in a proper way. Players no, do it all the I time. I'm on the, the, the video here, but I've been in games where people pick their cards up, you know, one, yeah, yeah. one card in each hand like this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that's the thing. But I've seen, um, especially at the high stakes games, oftentimes the players will point out to the recreational players. Uh, I'm sorry, I just picked your cards. I saw your cards. Uh, make sure it doesn't happen again because, you know, you're not protecting them very well. And that's a sort of thing. I, I actually do that as well. I will tell a, a recreational type player once that he's doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I like to win his money, but uh, I, it, I want to win it in a more ethical way. Yeah. However, I, I tell them once and then if they keep doing it, that's, that's too bad for them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I usually just keep telling them, <laughs> even if they do it. But... Um, and I don't know exactly why. Like I, I didn't think through some ethical strategy. There is just I feel uneasy in the situation when I know that the cards are exposed. I obviously do my best not to look, but sometimes you can't help if they just basically put your cards, uh, put their cards in your face. What are you gonna do? But you know, it's just I think it's for the benefit of all the players at the table to make sure this thing doesn't happen. Uh, it creates a better atmosphere, the better enjoyment for a recreational player as well, because he at least feels that he's not there being taken advantage of. You just you just hit the nail on the head. When, when you do that for a recreational player, he'll feel more at home and more comfortable in the game. And it's another thing that will encourage him to keep playing. Uh, ironically, by, by doing that and being very nice about it and highly ethical, you probably just cost the recreational player even more money. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> you encourage him to play longer. Yeah. And that, and that point is ironically one of the, uh, the points of the book is that the longer you can keep these recreational players playing and this proper balance of luck and skill is there, uh, poker will thrive and poker games will thrive. Mm. And, and that means the poker room will thrive. Yeah, and you know, there's now I'm thinking about some points you made in the book. Um, 
about making well so basically you're advocating of reducing the win rate of the professional players for the good of keeping the game alive for longer but you also mentioned a lot of points which would speed up the game so well, in let the me fact- stop right there the book does not advocate reducing the win rate of professional players it, it, it's slightly different the book says you have to make sure the win rate of professional players does not get too high Right. Well, that's a little different from reducing. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you clarified because obviously what I said is inaccurate. But uh, although it's accurate in the current environment where where the win rates in many games is too high. So the goal is to to slow it down a bit. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. But obviously that's not the premise of your book of let's reduce the win rates. That's that's inaccurate. But um, you also advocate speeding up the games in many ways by eliminating uh, some things that slow down from the casino uh, procedures with with the dealers, with the chip runners, with, with all those things. So eventually, if all those things in combination are applied, it's for the good of everybody because even though your win rate per hand might go lower if the balance of luck and, and skill is... is uh, slightly better but at the same time you're playing more hands per hour and it's more enjoyable to play more hands per hour because nobody likes to to sit there and and watch the dealer change the deck three times in an hour or you know count his chips uh, every 20 minutes you know that's absolutely correct this isn't in the book but uh after the book was finalized and uh sent on for printing we we got a post on, on our website by somebody who works in a poker room in the state of Florida. And he said that one of the things they do there, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but one of the things that slows up games is dealers have to refill their tray. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they call the chip runner over and they use lammers and they do all this stuff. He said what they do in their poker room is they just swap out the trays. That they have a bunch of, he said they have a plastic insert in the tray mm-hmm. and they have a bunch of these pre-ready trays to go. So when a dealer's tray gets low on chips, you know, because it gets cash and stuff, they just bring the new tray over, drop it in, pick up the old tray, and and then the the, uh, the management personnel, they're the ones who count it. And if it's off, then they get back with the dealer. He said it works real well. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a surprising thing for me to hear, but but boy, that would be a much better procedure than what I watch. Yeah, absolutely. And especially the dealers walking with their, their trays. You you had a, a full discussion there, a full chapter about that in, in the book. And uh, definitely makes sense that it, it, it shouldn't be like that. Right. There's some card rooms I know in California that do this. I assume they still do it. I've been over there in, in years. But... The dealers carry their own tray, so it's their money. And so now some of these issues that slow the game down go away because the, because the dealer, it's his own tray. He doesn't have to make sure the, you know, that the count's right every time. But it does make it easier for the dealers to steal chips. Mm. And, and one of the things point out in, a, in, in the book is that <clears throat> poker rooms, need to maintain a, a, a reputation of honesty and integrity. And that, this could be one of the things that, that, that can hurt that. 
and once that once that's hurt, you're going to have uh, less games. Mm. At least yeah. in that poker room, you'll have less games. Yeah, and you know, I was reading about speeding up the games and eliminating. Um, also, like the idea of instead of uh, bringing a new setup, just changing a damaged card if there's one card damaged, um, especially if it's not an, a, a frequent occurrence, and then you know that there's probably just one card damaged in the whole deck. So why not just uh, change that? Speeds up the the process uh, by by a lot. Yes, or, or at least just change the one deck. Well, why do they have to change the two decks of the setup? Yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah, I was thinking about reading that. And then I came to a chapter where you talk about running it twice. And I had a sort of defensive reaction to it. I was like, no, Mason, you're not going to advocate that we should not run it twice because I'm one of the players who's usually, I'm just always running it twice and let's just run it twice. Um, and you make a point about that skews the luck and skill balance again towards the skill because you're you're reducing the variance so long term it's it's better for for the skilled player and which i agree to and then i also thought and wouldn't that speed up the game by a lot because counting and splitting the pots every time there's a there's a run it twice spot and hopefully not with three players involved when you need to quarter the pot here give a half here side pot main pot sometimes those things take like seven to ten minutes to resolve one hand and and that is just an incredible waste of time and it could be just, just completely eliminated by we run it once and um, it would be so much better i i didn't even uh, think about when that chapter was written i didn't even think about the uh the time aspect. I was just looking at the effect on the on the proper balance of, of luck and skill. Yeah, but it definitely makes sense to get rid of the run it twice. Although, like I said, I had a complete like defensive reaction. I was like, no, it, I if, if he says we need to stop it, I can't agree with it because it's been I've been always running it twice, and I even thought it's better for the recreational players because a lot of the recreational players do want to run it twice because they perceive it as they have a higher chance of staying in the game. At least they chop the pot, they can continue. They wouldn't want to rebot. Um, but from a perspective of time saving, it would be a, a huge thing, especially with some of the dealers. Because with some dealers, you know, if it's a three-way uh, run it twice spot, might as well just take a 15-minute break because you're maybe just going to miss one hand in those 15 minutes. You just made an interesting point. The uh, recreational player who wants to run it twice, if the expert player is running more true to form, in other words, uh, he's reduced to variance a lot, in the, in the long run, that will cause the recreational player to be out of the game quicker. Now, it, it could be that... Uh, Maybe the uh, recreational player is all in, and he's a significant uh, dog on, on on the hand. And if he loses a hand, then he'll he'll be out of the game. Then that point would be right. But I think in the long run, uh, you know, running it twice is is eliminating these uh, recreational players faster. Mm -hmm. 
And it's easy to see. Instead of running it twice, why don't why don't you run it twenty times? If you run it run it twenty times, there'll be almost no variance on on the results, and w which means that every every time that happens, the uh, the expert player in general is going to going to do better, and 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 that will slowly will just just wipe out the, the recreational player for sure. Absolutely, absolutely, I I completely agree with you that long term running it twice is is the best decision for the the professional in this case but psychologically a lot of recreational players are would prefer to run it twice because also the one thing you see with a clear divide between the professionals and the recreational player a lot of most of the professional players would just always run it twice if they run it twice they always run it twice and like sure let's run it twice whereas the recreational player is more prone to changing their mind because say they're close to the end of their session they're more likely to run it once because now they don't care to get eliminated because they are, they're heading home in 15 minutes anyway and you see it all the time in the beginning of the session everybody's saying yeah i'd prefer to run it twice or three times if i can but towards the end of the session sure let's do it once and and let's just see either i have a nice winning day or i just go home with nothing Okay. That sounds sounds about right to me. Yeah. But still, I, I do agree that... I would still get rid of it. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I agree with you. And I, I never thought that I would change my mind. Because I, I remember many discussions with uh, fellow professional poker players about running it twice and the etiquette of that and how you're supposed to do it, etc. So I thought on the subject a lot. But reading your book and... Seeing it, especially in the light of speeding up the game, that alone would make it worth for me not to run it twice. And nobody should run it twice. Just speed up the game and you see sometimes two times more hands, especially in the game that I play, which is Pot Limit Omaha. Okay, well, well there's an important point here that, that comes in. If you're a professional player, you're going to be playing a lot of poker. And in, in the world of... Uh, statistical theory uh, your expectation is proportional to the number of hands that you play while the variant while the square root of the variance which is standard deviation which is the thing that we all look at for, for measurement of short-term loan that's proportional to the square root of the number of hands that you play and what that means is that over time the expectation is going to dominate in, in other words you, you play enough poker, you don't worry about the luck factor anymore. So it creates a, lo a lot of interesting uh, things. Uh, for example, when you go in and play poker tonight, it's fair to say that you're gambling. And, and that's because you can't say with much certainty what your result's going to be. Mm -hmm. However, if you go and play poker lots and lots of nights, then you can say, with a fair amount of certainty what your uh, uh, the results are going to be. So it creates a strange dichotomy in the sense that you go and you gamble every night, and after enough nights of gambling every night, you're not gambling anymore. <laughs> and that that's what's happening here. Uh, the, the expert players are looking at this too much from a gambling perspective. They're saying, I'm gambling tonight. I prefer not to gamble tonight. 
therefore let's run it twice or run it three times or whatever. The right way to look at it is to say, I'm going to be here every night doing this. And in the long run, the, the, the luck factor will basically go away <clears throat> or dissipate enough that I don't care about it. And, and, the, and therefore, there was no need to run it twice or run it three times. And, but, but I'm able to play a lot more hands. That's got to be advantageous to me. Speaking of playing a lot more hands, probably a controversial idea that you had in the book about the talking de dealers. And I, I sense that you have a very strong opinion on that. So, so let's yes. talk about that. A bit. <laughs> well, I consider the worst pro problem in, in poker rooms to be talking dealers. And what will happen is that a dealer will be talking. And a lot of times you'll see them uh, turn, halfway turned around in their seat like talking to somebody in one of the end seats <clears throat> and a dispute will happen and the dealer won't really know what, what, what occurred. And the foreman will come up and the foreman will, will say to the, to the table, let me hear what the dealer says because that's the way the system's supposed to work. Now, I've never heard a dealer say to a floor person, I wasn't paying attention and have no idea what happened. What they do is they usually say something. And I've seen situations where uh, what they, they say, not only has it very little to do with what really happened in the hand, it will infuriate both players. And I even know of a couple examples where uh, here in Las Vegas, the dispute not only went to uh, upper casino management, but went, went to the Nevada Gam Gambling Commission and, you know, to be resolved. And, that's, and that just can't be good for poker. And... There's this idea out there, especially in small stake games, that the dealer's supposed to be social and, and make, a, make the game more of a fun atmosphere and everything. But if a player wants to talk, he's got seven or eight other players to talk to. Yeah. And even in small stakes games, the money on the table can be very serious money for some people. And, those, and with today's high rakes, I think these all these players have the right to have their have the dealers doing their job well, and not paying attention and talking is not part of them, and and, and every now and then causing a huge problem is certainly not part of it. Yeah, but I feel like there's a misalignment of incentives there a bit, especially in the United States, because obviously United States, out of all the countries in the world that. I'm aware of anyway, has the strongest tipping culture. Because unfortunately, the, the flat wage is just nothing. So you're basically working for, for the tip as a dealer. And for a lot of dealers, the go-to strategy is to attract attention to themselves by engaging with the players, hoping, rightfully so, because obviously your favorite dealer, you're going to be tipping him or her more often just because there's some social aspect to it. And you remember about them a bit more and feels like a lot of dealers feel if they are not noticed at all. Because let's face it, if the dealer really does his or her job really good, you don't really notice that the dealer is there. Well, what you're saying may, may be true with some people. It's certainly not true with me. Uh, I'm much more uh, likely to, to tip a dealer who's doing their job in a highly efficient manner. 
and in addition, dealers who do their jobs in a highly efficient manner deal more hands. More hands they deal, the more opportunity that they have to get a tip. Uh, Absolutely. I agree with you. And there are plenty of examples of really good dealers doing their job really good and being rewarded by it. But a lot of dealers have the misconception that they have to be somewhat on the mind of the players by engaging with them um, all the time just to, just to get the tip. You, you may be absolutely correct, but you could also be completely wrong. I mean, some dealers just talk too much. And then well, yeah. they, they use that as, as the excuse as to why they talk too much. Right. I'm trying to be be engaged with it with the players, and, and I know it'll get me more tips in the long, long run. Yeah. In my opinion, it doesn't. It gets them less tips. Yeah. At least in the games I play, and that's the case. Yeah. You know, every time I think in the casinos where where the tipping culture is such that you basically don't need to tip the or you're not not supposed to tip the dealers almost to that extent you have the best dealers and you know for me if i don't mix it up i think the dealers in australia were just top class the dealers in barcelona top class and both of those places if i'm not mixing up because it might be somewhere else but if i'm right those two places just you know, the, first of all, the, the quality of the dealer is really good, really professional, really almost no mistakes or very few mistakes um, from them, both technical, misdeals, all that stuff, and uh, counting the pot, doing their job really good. And they're all really highly trained because they're getting paid really good and it's really hard to get a license and keep a license as a dealer. Mm, so eventually it attracts a lot of really, really good professional people uh, into the into the space. Well, first off, I don't have experience out of the country. I'm just basically experienced in, in the western part of the United States. You may also be hitting upon an idea that the upper management of the poker room is doing a better job. They're... they're uh, because you used the, the, the words highly trained. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that might be coming from uh, upper management of poker room is, is is making is on top of their dealers a little bit better than they are here. Yeah. But obviously the whole situation is different because the rake structures are different. The rake is definitely higher. Um, less promotions, less engagement for the players, less of all that stuff. But at the same time, the quality of the poker rooms usually tend to be better. So yeah, I mean, go figure. I don't know. But you can't change the tipping culture in, in the United States. I mean, that, that would be fighting against the windmill, I feel like. Right. Well, the one thing that you can do is... Uh... Which, which some casinos do is they have the dealers share all the tips. Uh, that's, that's something I've never liked, but uh, th that might give a dealer le less incentive to, to talk. Yeah, I'm not sure. sure. It, it also disincentivizes some of the better people to perform as good as they can. There is an uh, occasional 
conflict between the dealers, which is in a way good that you know the better ones are going to be pushing the weaker ones uh, to to up their game. But in general, I don't think it creates a very good atmosphere. In, uh, in, in you know, you know that that's another point I, I didn't mention in the book. I have mentioned it in other places in my writing. If you're a dealer and you're following a very bad dealer mm. who's not getting the hands out, is irritating the players. So now that dealer leaves the table, you sit down, you got a whole bunch of irritated players. Yeah. Your your tips will go down. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, this is one of the, one of the points in the book is that all these different uh, functions of the poker room need to work well together. And if they work well together, everybody benefits. And one of the benefits would be to, to dealers would be they, they would their income would be a little bit higher. Hmm. Yeah, and for the players, obviously, the benefit is that there is more games, they're more available. Um, more games, more hands when they're playing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and definitely dealing with uh, disputes. Exactly, uh, I was just about to say because dealing with the disputes and and the misdeals and especially the inconsistency of the decisions, which is also a point you make in the, in the book, and it can't be stressed enough. The inconsistency just well drives me crazy for sure because it's uh, like, what's the point of the rule book if you don't even read it as a as a floor person? Right. There needs to be, uh, I think this is this is a failure of the top management a lot, but th there needs to be this discussion between the, the, the floor people who make the decision and the manager. You know, you know, the, they should have me, I don't maybe some rooms do this, you know, but they should have meetings every so often mm -hmm. where they're all together and and they talk about some of the decisions they've had to make and why they made them certain ways. And then, then they can sort of iron them out to where everybody agrees. Mm. Mm. What are some of the favorite rooms that you've played in? And um... well, right, right now, I've only basically been playing at at, at two rooms. Uh, one, one is the uh, Bellagio, and I'm I'm still mainly a limit player. And that's the only room where they have significant limit games. So, so that that leaves me no choice. But when I go and, and, and do play uh, no limit, and when I play no limit, it's usually small stakes, I'll often go to the South Point Poker Room. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the South Point Poker Room is a room that's, uh, you're probably not even familiar with South Point, are you? No, no. It's just, on the, just go to Bellagio as well. Yeah, it's on the... the the southern end of the strip. It's actually mm -hmm. sort of past the end of the strip, but but it's a it's a big casino and it's a poker room on the rise, and I even mentioned it favorably in the book. It, it's relative to almost all other poker rooms it's, that I'm familiar with. It, it's it's well run. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's still a few mistakes they're making, um, and I know the poker room manager there pretty well. He he seems to be very conscientious. And unlike some poker room managers, he's there. That's the, another chapter in the book. Yeah. These poker room managers you could never find. So what are some of the things that they do really well compared to um, most of the other rooms? Well, the one, the one thing for new setups, they just change a card out. Uh, 
to refill the dealer's tray, their 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 procedures is is much faster. Uh, the the, uh, the the dealer, I think what what happens is the dealer tells the uh, a floor person comes over, who's who's going to run the chips. So, so so the dealer tells that person, you know, I need 120 in chips. Now that person. Uh, puts the lammers down, not the dealer. So he comes over, the dealer says, I need 120 chips. He puts the lammers down, the dealer deals, is now dealing the next hand. The cash that she's gonna take out of the rack for the chips stays in the rack. Then the floor person will bring, bring the chips over. The dealer will hand them the cash. The floor person counts it. He hands the chips to the dealer and the dealer just looks at the rack to make make sure that the the chips are the right amount instead of taking each stack out and breaking them down, mm -hmm. you know, like they do. So it's a much quicker procedure. Um, right. They 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 seem to have less trouble with talking dealers than some rooms do. It's not perfect. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I don't know. They just seem to be much better. They just seem to be well organized. You don't have long rates waits to cash out chips. I'm sure you're familiar with that in some poker rooms. Oh yeah, absolutely. What do you think are some of the things that poker players themselves could do to improve the experience for themselves, for for fellow poker players, and perhaps make the poker rooms better? Well, I mean, I think. A lot of the, the tanking and stalling that you see to be cut out or cut way down, especially in these no, no limit games. Uh, poker players themselves sometimes initiate these conversations with the dealers. And it makes it tough on a dealer. A dealer might not want to talk, but now you got this person, you know, t talking to them constantly. Mm. So players need to understand, you know, let the dealers deal. I don't need to have a long conversation with them, uh, and and just basically, you know, be be polite. You know, I don't think you have to be overly friendly, you know, to the recreational players. You you can if you want to be, but you should at least be be polite to them. You shouldn't be criticizing them when they draw out, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Um, on a more te technical matter. One of the problems I see in, in, in today's particular no limit games is these maximum buy-ins have been pushed up. Mm -hmm. And I think it just clearly explain it to, to, to everybody. If, if you have two players, well, let's, let's say you and I are playing. So I'm the recreational no limit player and you, you, you're the expert. Then I happen to get lucky and win a couple of nice pots and I got a lot of chips. Now, if you have enough chips to, to cover me, your advantage over me just went up. In other words, uh, the more chips I have as a weak player, the larger the advantage the experts will have over me, uh, providing that they have the chips to cover me. So that's upsetting the balance of, of luck and skill. Uh, a good example is the, which I have in the book, is, is the Bellagio has a, a two-five no limit game with with a, uh, a five hundred dollar maximum buy-in, and that's the smallest 
maximum buy-in in town. Now, South Point, this is one of the things I think they've made an error on. They have a 3-5 no-limit game with a $1,500 buy-in. Now, without knowing very much, one of those has to almost has to be wrong. And I believe it's it's the one with the $1,500 buy-in. It gives the, these ex, the experts can always trap a, a recreational player and wipe them out. Just because of the buy-in, recreational players usually don't buy in for the max. So a recreational player, if he sits down in one of these three, five, no limit games, my, my guess is they usually buy in from about 500 to uh, 800. That seems to be where, where they're at. So so now they can double up and, and the, the, the the pro who, who's just sat down can still, can still trap them for all their chips in one hand. And in the... Uh, if the buy-ins was smaller, they wouldn't be able to do that. And, and, and I, I think that that hurts the games in the long run. So this is something I think the, the, the pros need to understand is that you push these buy-ins up too much. Yes, you may win more money tonight or have a higher expectation tonight. But in the long run, you're going to be wiping out these recreational players too fast and they won't come back. Mm. And in the long run, it's got to be hurting you. Why is it that at the highest stakes, there's usually no cap to the buy-in? There's always the minimum buy-in, but there's basically no cap. You can sit down with the million dollars if you want. Well, the, the minimum buy-in, first, the minimum buy-in is obvious, and, and that is uh, there's certain advantages to uh, short-stack strategies. Yeah, and you really don't want the, those in the game. Uh, as to why the, the buy-in becomes uncapped, I, I really don't have the answer for that, except that these games are more populated by a much higher percentage of, of very good players. So the, the problems that, that the higher buy-in creates versus the recreational players won't, won't be there as much. I mean, for example, uh, let's say you're in a game like, uh, I've seen this, like a 10-20 uh, line, no limit hold'em game where a guy sits down you know, and, and buys in for a million dollars. I've actually seen that a couple of times. You can almost be certain that that million dollars is only going to go in the pot unless it's, if, only if the player has the nuts. Otherwise, it's not going in. So maybe that's a partial answer as to why that is, or yeah. or the poker rooms just gave up and, and well, said, "All right, these games will go to unlimited buy-in." But at the same time, as you know, what what's going to happen is, let's say, a recreational player at some point uh, manages to build a stack, and all of a sudden he's sitting there with, let's say, six hundred big blinds, which is a healthy stack, and he should be comfortable in most settings. But at the high stakes game it's pretty much guaranteed that all of the experts are going to cover him. So going to top up to probably cover him and all the newcomers are going to sit down with a thousand big blinds or so, so that they always have the option of, of uh, stacking him. Well, you know, there's a story in a book which actually happened. This happened a number of years ago, but in, in the Blasio, they have a, a five ten no limit game with a $1,500 buy-in, which is, I think, the smallest buy-in in town. 
Or I don't I don't think. I mean, I know that's the smallest buy in the town for for five ten blind game. Mm-hmm. And in their ten twenty blind game, it's unlimited buy-in. And then one day, for some reason, they decided to lift the buy-in from the uh, five ten game and make it unlimited. And what happened was all the ten twenty players quit playing and went to the five ten game. Mm-hmm. And that only lasted maybe half a day or so yeah. before they realized that, that, uh, that they had made a mistake. But uh, what you're saying is, is absolutely right. I mean, in my opinion, I guess uh, even in these high stake games, there probably should be a cap on the buy-ins. Yeah. I, don't, for, I don't know if it's a reason that, that you're worked. saying. Because uh, even the recreational players are oftentimes very happy to buy in very deep. There's something about even if you're playing your usual, let's say, uh, uh, 5100 game of Potlum at Omaha, there's something to be said with sitting with 100,000 in front of you. Just feels good to a lot of recreational players, right? Is it good for them long term? Is it good for the game long term? Probably not. You think it is good? No, probably not, because probably not, we come yeah. back to the same thing of, you know, eventually they just go broke to quicker than they should. I know years ago there was a when, – when this goes back to the early 90s when, when Limit was the predominant game. There, there's a player I knew who, instead of playing 2040 Limit, he would constantly try to go to a 4080 Limit mm-hmm. and have somebody take half his action. And because of the status of it. And of course, yeah. the 4080 limit games are usually tougher. So he was a professional player, and he would put himself in a spot where, he, where his expectation was to make less money mm-hmm. with, with, with basically the same amount of risk. And, uh, but, but, but he now had the status of playing you know, in the higher game. Yeah. And I, I think that that's what you're looking at. People feel good about that. Yeah, absolutely. And and that behavior I see a lot. It, it happens a lot. Um, it's hard to explain, really, because on paper, a lot of these people are rational in uh, trying to select the best game they can for the best win rate. But if you look at what's practically happening, it's uh, rarely the case, you know, especially for people who are used to, let's say somebody identifies as, uh, well, I play 5k in the Bellagio. That's my game. You rarely see them playing 1020 in Aria just because I don't belong here. I, I'm a 5K player from Bellagio. And, and that's, you know, just such a common occurrence. Right. That's people get their home poker room and that's where they, they go and play. And also, you know, you, they, they're, they're, they're stake and they get so. Um, Tied, tied to it, sort of, that they're not willing to step lower, even if they know that the win rate might be higher at that particular night because, well, you've got a very good recreational player with uh, willing to gamble, and perhaps there's more than one, and the game is amazing, but no, you're, you're still sticking to your good old 5K PLO. Mm. And another thing, because you've mentioned... Uh, Bellagio lifting the cap uh, on on the maximum buy-in in the five ten game, and that killed the ten twenty game. Another thing that I see oftentimes has the same effect. If is 
if if the lower stake game has um, straddle allowed, very often it would just kill the higher stake game because what's the point of playing ten twenty if the table just wants to straddle every hand in five ten? Well, there's a chapter on straddles in the book. Yeah, and uh, I think you hit upon an error that that a number of people are making. Uh, I've seen this argument where uh, where you put like in a five ten game, you put a ten dollar straddle every hand, mm-hmm. and what it does it it reduces. You're now basically able to play ten twenty at a reduced rate. Mm-hmm. It is the idea, yeah. and I think that's wrong because you still have that extra little blind in there. So instead of having blinds of of, of just five and ten, you now have blinds of five, ten, and twenty. Mm-hmm. While in a ten twenty game, you, you would only have blinds of ten and twenty. So you, you put that extra five dollar. You now have a you now have a ten twenty game with a with an extra five dollar blind. Well, what does what does that five dollar blind do to an expert player? I think it reduces his win rate because the recreational player is now not punished as much because when he does win pots, he there's a little bit more money in there. Mm-hmm. So, so I I, th- I think that's that I think that's a mistake that uh, this isn't in the book, but I think that's a mistake that that some of these these good no limit holding players make who try to create a game where everybody straddles every hand. They think they're actually saving money from the rake, but but they're I think they're giving up more than what they're saving to the recreational players because they've reduced their win rate. Well, there's there's several other aspects to it though, because if we assume that the general player pool at the 510 is significantly weaker than at the 1020, so being a 1020 player in the 510 pool with a straddle, um, you your initial advantage is even higher. So your win rate is is even higher. And sure, you reduce it by a bit uh, with the third blind. That's that's true. But on the offset, you're you're just playing a weaker game, and and you're going to be doing better. Which obviously doesn't apply to somebody who's already playing at the top of their level and uh, and already is not one of the top players at the table. Clearly, the the straddle doesn't really work in their favor that much, unless they're exploiting the other aspect of let's assume they're a short stack expert and introducing the the third straddle allows them to be in that sweet spot, comfortable situation where they really know what they're doing pre-flop, whereas most of the other players, especially the recreationals, are making glaring mistakes? Uh, I'm not a short stack expert, and that's number one. So uh, there's a couple of things here. Uh, First off, is it fair to a recreational player who might want to play five ten, to now make them play ten twenty. Mm. That, that that that's what happens when someone puts a straddle on. Yeah, I think that's something poker management has to look at. Yeah. Uh, and now, also when someone takes a straddle to the left of the big blind, I I think it's pretty obvious they're making a bad play. Mm. But when 
and this is something that I think is highly misunderstood. When they take the button straddle, they actually may be making the, the, the right play. Uh, suppose you're an expert player. You have a certain advantage over a uh, recreational player. Now, the more chips you have and the more chips the recreational player has, as we just mentioned, the larger your advantage will be. So if, if you're an expert, you're on the button, and, and, and you see that a couple of these recreational players, not just by luck, have a lot of chips, it would be worth it to you to, to pay a little bit extra money to make the stakes mm -hmm. bigger. And so for that reason, I think these button straddles should never be allowed. Oh, yeah. Because now you're upsetting the balance of luck and skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I'm totally with you on that one. I, I hate the, the button straddles, even though, as you said, sometimes they are theoretically good. And sometimes it's, it's, it's great and sure. you have all the incentives sure. to do it, but they shouldn't be allowed. And another aspect, just coming back to what you said uh, just earlier about if a player joins a 2-5 game, does he really want to play a straddle? And is it good? And I feel like oftentimes what happens, people are bullied into playing the straddle. They join the 2-5, they join the 5-10, they're bullied into playing with a straddle because somebody's trying to create an edge or think that they create an edge. But anyway, they push that player out of their comfort zone. He didn't come there to play the 5-10, he came there to play 2-5. Now he's stuck playing the 5-10. And because of the peer pressure, very few people are willing to outright say, no, I'm not going to straddle. And because it just feels really bad to be the only player or one of the two players at the table who killed the genius idea of, okay, how about we just straddle three rounds? Because it always starts like, shall we just straddle one round? It's one round of straddles, guys. And then, hey, shall, let's keep it going. Let's just yeah, keep let's it going. Again. Right? And eventually it comes to a point where a new player comes into the game and the table announces, uh, well, do you know we're straddling here? So it's basically a you know a, a five-time game or something like that, which is definitely in the long term for the ecology of that game, it's detrimental because that person who got bullied into playing the five-time with a straddle might not want to come back to the five-time next time because he knows that, well, he's going to be forced to play, play, play the straddle again. So next week you see him at the lower stake or in another room um, for a lower stake once again. I, I think that's all right, but, but but actually you 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 made an additional point, and that is the player has moved out of his comfort zone. And what happens when players get moved out of their comfort zone, especially if they're a loose recreational player? They will often tend to play tighter. Yeah. That's not good for the game either. No. You, you want the recreational players to be recreational players. And you want them to come back. I mean, obviously, if you're not feeling comfortable in the game and if your stress levels are really high, and it's a stressful thing for a lot of people who play poker on a, you know, not a regular basis. And it, it can be a, the most fun experience and a fun night, but it can be a miserable, miserable experience. The more of the miserable experience type days they have, the less likely they're going to come back. That's, that's absolutely correct. And, and uh, so the, the chapter I have on straddles uh, basically says 
poker rooms really shouldn't have straddles. But it, it also says that a lot of poker rooms are, are now, there's so much straddling done in some poker rooms that it'd be really difficult for a poker room to just say, no more straddles ever. Yeah. Um, maybe they can knock them out of their smaller games or at least stop the button straddle. But, uh, mm. you know, the, the, they should look at ways to scale it back. Definitely they should do it with the smaller games. Um, it's going to be hard to do it at the higher stakes games because there's a lot of ego involved as well and there's something macho about uh, let's do a straddle then a re-straddle and a re-straddle because, you know, it's not uncommon in Bellagio to sit at the let's say a 51 game and you're playing half the night, you're actually playing a 51 to 400, right? And that's the game. Why are we playing four blinds? Why don't we just bump it up to the new stake? Okay, on paper, we're going to be paying higher rake, but uh, does it really matter at those stakes? It, it doesn't. No. And uh, no, what you're saying is absolutely right. I, I used to be pretty good friends with an ultra high stakes player. I used to play a lot of tennis with. And he used to tell me that, you know, in our games, we the players make the rules. The house doesn't make the rules. Mm. So, you know, when there's a dispute at the table, you know, we the players work it out. The house doesn't. Yeah. And, uh, but that's true. That's those true. games are, are, are really a, a separate animal from the, from the large majority of games, which are small stake games. Yeah. Yeah. And, th and that's why I'm saying that. The casino should definitely look into setting those rules for the lower stake game because they're not going to succeed in the higher stake game very often because, well, the players just do come up with their own rules and they they want to play the, the game they want to play. And the whole table agrees. Sure. What are you going to do? Uh, this is actually hitting upon another point. There's another chapter in the book. And one of the things that it points out is that... A, in some of these poker rooms where they do have these high-stake games, management and floor people, their attention is too much focused on the high-stake games. Mm -hmm. And they, they forget that the large majority of games that are in the poker room, and these people are paying almost the same rake, yeah. are these smaller-stake games. Now, now, it may be true that some of these players in these very high-stake games are also good casino customers. But from a poker room perspective, they, they do tend to, uh, to to neglect the smaller stake games and ignore them while, while they don't the higher stake games. Mm. You know, one very common example is uh, I've seen poker rooms with higher stake games that whenever they uh, bring in a, a new setup of cards, they make sure they're new, brand new cards. Mm -hmm. while, while all the old older beat-up cards go to the lower stake games and why should that be i mean the lower stake games are paying just as much you know what it's funny because i never realized that's happening i always just saw the new deck and i thought well everybody's getting a new deck it makes sense yeah. right where all where the old decks are going of course yeah they go to the one two games and the all right one three games but um but also one aspect of having those high stakes areas in the poker room in a way, sure, those those players usually are also good in the pits, so they're usually good customers for the casinos, but there's another aspect. They're also a good indirect marketing for the poker room. In some cases. A, a lot of poker players 
just want to hang out and be in the same casino, especially the tourists, you know, the ones that, you know, first time in Vegas and well, where are you going to go? Well, I'm going to go, let's say to Bellagio, because I know that's where the Bobby's room is or whatever they recalled it now for something else, unfortunately, but um, I was going to go there and that's where all the big names hang out. I might get a glimpse of them. I might get a picture. I might get a little conversation. I might say hi. And that's worth something to to the players. So they, the casinos benefit from it indirectly, whether they do it on purpose or not. But you know, they're perhaps pampering those higher stakes game games for that reason as well. That's absolutely correct. So, I'm, so a very good poker manager has to, when he makes his decision, has to balance these things. Mm. There has to be. Uh, you know, some flexibility. You know, for example, there's a, a chapter in the book on obnoxious players, mm-hmm. you know, how you handle obnoxious players and stuff. And what's written there is all the standard stuff, so I don't need to re- repeat, repeat it here, except right at the end of the, of the chapter, I talk about something called uh, sucker privileges. And, and I really cover that more in, in depth in my uh, real poker psychology book. Mm-hmm. But But basically... You know, you're a player, and and you lose a lot of money at the poker table. And I, as a manager, come up to you and say, "You can't behave like that. You're out of here." <laughs> Players will go crazy. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot of flexibility in, in, in some of this stuff. Yeah. Do you think it's a good thing though that we're protecting? the players who create this really bad atmosphere just because they left a lot of money at the table? Because what message does it send to the people on the rail? Or I can just imagine some of the recreational players passing through the poker room and see, well, this is not a game I want to play. Just look at the mess that's going on. All the shouting, all the all the all the things that are happening. I don't want to join this game. And I don't know. Is, think, is it good that we're pampering those, those players or not? I think the answer to that is how are you affecting the proper balance of luck and skill? If you have a game, especially in the higher stakes, well, let, 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 me, let me back out of, out of this and I'll come right back to it. A very common question that I hear all the time is what percentage of players win at poker? You have a, an answer. Um, was it you who asked me that question before? Yeah, well, I think we talked about that before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, I don't remember but, what I answered back then, but, but uh, I but, think the percentage is really, really low. For, if we talk about, because uh, I remember we had them, maybe I thought from a perspective of professional, how the percentage of professional poker players, and you thought poker players in general, like people playing poker. Well, the, the typical answer you, you'll get is like two to two to four percent, mm-hmm. something very low like that. But if you go into a major poker room, and Blasio would be a good example, and you took a photograph, and you went around the photograph and you counted all the winning players, I think the number's more like 70%. And the reason for that is winning players, you know, play much more hours mm-hmm. than losing players. So, if, so just as an example of, if I'm a winning player and I play a thousand hours a year and you're a losing player and you play two hours a year and you're one trip to Las Vegas, 
I should count 500 times more than you do. Mm. And, and we see this in the poker room. And when you get up into these very high-stake games, the, the numbers is easily 90% and higher. So now you got a guy who's behaving badly, but he's a, you know, a producer when it comes to, to this game. So the money he's losing is, is not only paying everybody's rake, but it's, he's paying rake on the, for the days he's not there. Yeah. And so again, you're looking at the proper balance of luck and skill Mm. in uh, smaller stake games where there's a, Fair number of recreational players, but maybe you don't tolerate it as much. Higher stakes games, it may be necessary to, to tolerate it more. Yeah, I, I'm happy that I don't have to deal with these problems as a floor manager or a card room manager because dealing with the high stakes games and catering for those players, it's tough. I, I have a story in an introduction to the book. It's a true story. Goes back in the early 1980s. I lived in uh, Southern California, and I, I, there was a, a high-stakes player who I knew, who was really an obnoxious guy. <clears throat> and I remember one day he got in like a big shouting match with one of the floor people, and the floor person said to him, "You know, you can't behave like that." And the guy said, "Look, I pay fifty thousand a year in, in collections." And remember this early 1980s. He said, I behave any way I want. And, and of course, he was right. They weren't going to do anything to him. And uh, so, so the, these are the sort of issues, you know, that the poker room was very well run. The issue that got him so upset, the, the, this obnoxious player, might not have happened. And therefore, this wouldn't have come out. Mm. So, but, but, but I, th- I think the answer to that question is, how does it affect the proper balance of luck and skill? In games where it's all, all, almost all top players, it can affect it a lot. All of a sudden, you have all skillful players; no one wins. Yeah. What's your opinion on those private lists? Where I don't know how to how to properly describe, but you know what I what I mean. Where where basically the game is started with the list that's preset, and and you have the players who are going to be on the table. That's when the game starts. And uh, which basically means it's a private game. It's a private well, game in a public casino. And in, in in Nevada, those there are no, there are not supposed to be any private games. That, that's not, I don't think that's legal. Uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Yeah. But you you basically only see it at the very very high limits. Mm. And uh, You know, I, I don't know. I mean, my guess is if if it's a public game, anyone should have, you know, the, the, an equal opportunity to get into the game. Mm-hmm. But 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 basically what's happening there is the person running the game and keeping the private list, <clears throat> he, he doesn't think of it in these terms, but he's he's actually trying to, to balance the, he's trying to keep the, the balance of luck and skill in proper balance. Because he wants to make sure you don't have too many expert players in the game. Yeah, so that's what he's doing. Well, that's one of the things he's doing, and also obviously what he's doing, and the justification for what he's doing is: well, I, I, I managed to gather the game, 
I managed to get everybody together. I, I managed to find the recreational player. So I deserve to decide who, who's going to play and who's not going to play. And obviously then you have people selling and buying pieces to get into the game and all that usual stuff. So for whoever creates the game, there are a lot of incentives to do that. And well, even though it's illegal to run private games, of course, they, they do it all the time under all sorts of pretexts. And I've seen things like, um, oh, there's already a list for 5,100. Um, well, never mind. We're going to play, uh, you know, something tiny, tiny bit different. We add an ante or something like that. It's yeah. a different game. We can start it. With a, with a $1 ante or something. Yeah. And then, then after you play a few hands, players decide not to ante anymore. Yeah. In the book, towards the end of the book, there's a, a chapter on props and a chapter on, on hosts. Uh, I'm negative towards uh, props. Props are uh, are people who are hired by by the card room who play with their own money, but but they're they're paid to play. Mm-hmm. And uh, a host is really a, a glorified prop. And you're describing a host there. And to me, a host creates a, a lot more problems, uh, which you're de- you're describing some of them. I mean, what, one of the problems is there's a dispute in the game. Who makes the decision? Mm-hmm. Is it the host or the, or the floor? And uh, a lot of times, I mean, it should be the floor, but a lot of times the host gets involved and there's all sorts of, all sorts of issues. And uh, I just don't think... Th- there's an example of, of a... When the Bellagio first opened, there was a high-stakes host who was a very well-liked person. I don't want to mention his name. You would know immediately who it was if I did. <clears throat> and uh, he wanted to, to change the uh, the ante stru- structure. He, he wanted uh, in the stud games, which he played. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there were a lot of these high-stakes stud games. So instead of a 75-150 stud game with a $15 ante, he wanted to make it an 81-60 stud game with a $20 ante. And, and I think that that change doesn't sound like much, but it, it dramatically tipped the balance of luck and skill. Too much towards luck. Well, that's what the host wanted because he liked to play loose. <laughs> so uh, the games began to disappear. Mm-hmm. What I, would actually, be... I, I want to go a little more now. I actually oh, yeah. told him straight out he was making a mistake. And uh, I told him he would lower the win rate of the good players and increase the, the you know the luck factor. And he agreed that the luck factor was being increased, but he refused, refused to agree that it would affect the win rate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it did. Why did that affect it with the win rate then? Because there's more there's more money in the pot. So now when the recreational player, he's not punished as much because he's going to still win his fair share of pots. Mm. So, so when he would lose a hand, he would lose basically the same amount, maybe a touch more. But now when he would win a hand, because there's more money in the pot, he would win more. So that cut his loss rates down. If you cut down his loss rates, the win rates of the good players have to be cut cut down as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Mason, you know what? I just remembered you had a very interesting chapter about promotions. Let's talk about that. I was going to mention that myself, though. We need to talk about that. I tell a story 
to start the chapter, which is actually a true, true story. I came to Las Vegas in 1987 and I was playing at a certain card room that was closed a couple of years later. And the poker room manager, I don't want to mention his name, he's retired now, but I mean, he was a very nice, pleasant guy, but his ideas on how to run a poker room and my ideas on how to run a poker room were different. And one day I told him as a joke, I said, <clears throat> you want to fill your poker room, you should take all your promotion money, go find the 10 worst players in town, give it to them and make them play, you know, your poker room until their money's gone. Of course, we laughed at that. But that's actually correct. Promotion should be designed so that the money, or at least the majority of the money, are going to your recreational players. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, th th this can be done subtly so that other players, you know, don't really realize that. I mean, I mean, what you'd like to be able to do is you'd like to be able to rate players. And then when it came in your poker room, someone's rating was low enough, you hand them a little extra money to play. It's because that's something that could never be done. But with that idea, I, I give th three examples. In, in there, one, one example is uh, high hand promotions where a poker room will announce that well every hour the high hand for the hour you know we'll give a bonus to <clears throat> in my mind that's pretty good promotion because the bad players are playing more hands than the good players mm -hmm. and that means they're more likely to make you know the four of kind and the straight flushes than, than the good players so so that's a promotion where the uh, the majority of the money should, should go to your recreational players and when the money goes to the recreational players, it'll be recirculated throughout the poker room. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's because they'll, they'll have more money to play, so they'll play longer. They'll, uh, uh, they'll, they'll lose that money, so some, some of it will go to, uh, you know, to the rake, some will go to the good players, and you know, some will go to tips. Now, a second type of promotion are, are just random seat drawings. In fact, I mentioned in the book that at the South Point, I won a random seat drawing recently. I got, I think I got 2,700. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and to me, that's a neutral promotion because a, a good player's probability of winning that promotion is the same as a, as, as a recreational player. And then a third type of promotion, which I've seen a lot in Las Vegas, it was very common before the pandemic, and that was to pay people to play. And, and, and typically, uh, they would they would pay somebody a hundred dollars if he played uh, twenty hours in a week, and, and two hundred if he played thirty hours in a week. So, who's going to be getting that money? Those are the, are, are your regular players who play a little bit better. So, here's a promotion, which in the short run. Maybe it creates a, a few more games, but in, in the long run, you're making the games tougher. Mm -hmm. And by, by doing that, you're upsetting the balance of luck and skill. And it hits a promotion, which is just obviously very bad for poker rooms, once you think it through, and, and probably damaged uh, these poker rooms that, that, that were constantly doing that promotion. 
It's funny that the online world went through exactly the same cycle. As as we remember, there there was the supernova elite in uh, Poker Stars, which basically was a clear incentive for the expert players because that was the huge reward, the the huge chest uh, at the end of the rainbow, where which was basically worth over a hundred thousand. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was, something like hundred twenty thousand in a year. It was actually a little bit worse than that because. To play enough hands, it meant you had to do a lot of multi-tabling. Mm-hmm. And, and now, and the way to do multi-tabling is you give up a little bit of your win rate and you, and you, and you move to these simple algorithmic type strategies and make the games really tight. Mm-hmm. So, so you were creating games. The, the, I think this is a big mistake Poker Stars made, but they were yeah. doing things to create games which were not good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and funny enough, that was such a huge outburst uh, and fallout once once they decided to scrap that scheme. Perhaps, obviously, because it was miscommunicated a bit, they did it, gave a really short notice and upset a lot of people. Uh, but as a general idea, it's actually a good idea. And now we see with, um, well, poker stars obviously changed their strategy themselves, uh, catering more promotions to the the recreational player and gg poker is is doing exactly the same thing and uh, as as much as the the regulars uh, the professional poker players actually hate it because if they feel like something was taken away from them which is true but also in the long run this is benefiting them indirectly because in the long run they're going to have more games more consistent um, ecology there well, there's two issues here. The way I understand it is the the uh, players who are participating in the Supernova Elite began the year thinking that, that they were going to get a certain payout. Yeah. And it wasn't until much later in the year they were they were told, oh, you're not getting that. Yeah. And so, 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 so that was very bad. And they shouldn't have done that. That was a mistake, the way they handled that. Honestly, but the general idea of... Uh, trying to reward recreational players more than you are rewarding your your expert type players i think it's is very correct mm. yeah i agree i agree and obviously it was miscommunicated and uh, wasn't presented well enough and i i've been there myself i did the supernova elite one of the years and i remember the first thing I did on the second of January, I woke up five in the morning and I had my plan. Okay, I'm, I'm. That's it, game time, and that basically was my whole year of consistently waking up really early, playing my set amount of hours, uh, sticking to routine. Not something that I would choose to do if there wasn't this this big reward at the end. So if you know halfway through or four months into the challenge. Of of going through through this, uh, you find out that oh, you know what those hundred twenty thousand you're supposed to get, well, you're not getting them. <laughs> it's obviously, it's yeah, obviously, obviously that's no good. But yeah. on the other on the on the other hand, they're they're paying they're paying you know very good players to make the games bad. It just yeah yeah exactly it, it didn't make sense. It wasn't thought, thought out well, right? It didn't make sense. And um, but once again, you know, it's hard for people to accept that they need to give something up that they feel they're entitled to 
they need to give it up for the greater good, for the long term, because you know it's pretty hard to think about long term when you're so focused on increasing your hourly every game you play. Anyway, the chapter on promotions, I, I feel, is one of the more important chapters in the book because so many of these poker rooms do promotions and they they don't think them through very well. Uh, I talked to a poker room manager recently. He had a little promotion in his poker room where in the weekly, their, their daily tournaments, they were adding money to the prize pool. So I said to him, this, this particular manager has read the book. I said to him, well, who's going to get the majority of that money that you add to the prize pool? Well, well, well the answer is, you know, the, the better tournament players. Mm-hmm. I said, I said, well, how, how about this? I said, instead of uh, adding the money directly to the prize pool, you, you leave the prize pool what it is, but then you say the first... 10 people who get knocked out of the tournament get their entry entry fees back. Mm. Well, expert players would then figure out, you know, how to adjust to play for that too. So that may not be that good of an idea, but what would, what would happen at first, particularly before the adjustment was made, was you'd have wild play instead of, at the beginning of the tournament. Mm. And uh, today, a lot of these tournaments, a lot of these players – these small, these small tournaments, and they just try to play real tight and survive. So, so now they have an incentive not to survive. And then you could do things like this. You can say, here's a voucher to get your entry fee back. And the way you get the voucher is you got to go play an hour in a cash game. Hmm. And so now you, you start getting tournament players who, who don't want to play cash games to be playing cash games. And then you could really target it. You, you could say something like, uh, you, you can only, if you want to build your, your limit holding games up, you can say, you, you must play in a limit holding game for an hour to get your, mm. your entry fee back. So the, the, these are things that, uh, you, know, you know, poker rooms could, could, could do if they, if they would just stop and think about where the money's going to. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if the money's going to the recreational players, the very good players are going to get it anyway, or at least they'll get a good portion of it, you know, less less to rake in the tips. The money's just going to the um, very good players. Uh, it's gone. It's out of the poker economy. Yeah, there's one thing that I'm thinking about regarding what you just mentioned, and I like the idea, but it needs to be thought through a bit for the idea of incentivizing people with the vouchers to play a cash game, for example, I think one promotion that is detrimental is where the poker rooms encourage the recreational players to play out of their comfort zone and, and do something stupid because in the long run, it's, it's again going to be hurting them because let's imagine a tournament player is suckered into playing the cash game because nobody's going to just stay there for an hour. Even if they're cashing the voucher, they're not just going to stick around for an hour. They're likely to keep on playing. Uh, and let's say you bust after 30 minutes, you still need to rebuy, play another 30 minutes. It might reduce the overall experience for them and might also hurt them financially. So it's well, one of those the, where we have to be careful not to incentivize people to do something that they're bad at. 
No, no I, I agree with you. I mean, you, you could do something like you could say you play for an hour or if you bust out before the hour. Right. You, you know, you have to buy. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to, to twink it. And, uh, you know, and, and, and make adjustments. And again, any promotion, you, you really have to, mm. have to think through. You, you know, a honest, little minor, minor thing. Uh, some poker rooms will give, uh, as a promotion, you know, a, a cash reward if you make a royal flush. Mm-hmm. Well, almost all players are going to play two suited cards, 10 or higher. You know, in, in no limit game. But what what if you change that promotion to uh, and and again, this is in the book, to a wheel flush. Good players aren't going to play hands like deuce four suited and deuce three suited, you know, and five deuce suited. A lot of bad players will. So now, even though you won't be giving this promotion out very often. At least a higher percentage of the money is now going to go to the recreational players mm-hmm. than it will to the, uh, uh, you know, to the regular players, and that that that's just just one little simple example of how these poker rooms could can improve the, these promotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting idea, and and definitely makes sense for increasing the likelihood of recreationals getting getting the price pool and also coming back to the same idea of let's say incentivizing somebody to play for an hour in a game uh, to cash a voucher i think it would work even if you just have to play one orbit to cash the voucher because of the human nature people are not going to just stick around for well that some people correct. will but you know most awesome. people will just stick around also, if, if you have that, uh, the promotion where the first, like the first X number of people out of the tournament get the voucher, mm-hmm. it's going to encourage people to play more recklessly, and and and, and people are going to now going to bust out of the tournament very quickly. Mm-hmm. So somebody who who decided, who would normally say, "Well, I'm going to go play poker room, play a tournament. I know I'll be there for a few hours." Some of them will be out out now very quickly, and they yeah. still want to be there for a few hours. Exactly. So exactly. so now now you give them some money to play in the cash game. Exactly, and there it makes their overall experience much much more enjoyable because there's nothing worse than driving to a casino, busting after five minutes, and then what you do? Right. And now you have an incentive to stick around. You actually you know, have have some prize for it and, and it feels good. And for those who bust after the 10th or whatever it happens to be for, for the first, uh, first X amount of people, well, they probably already played for an hour, maybe, right? So at least their, their trip wasn't wasted. They, they already got some, some fun for, uh, for the tournament. Although obviously busting a tournament is never fun, even if you bust a second. Right. I'm aware of that. <laughs> Right, but that that's a really interesting idea, and um, yeah, I'm sure that would definitely help some of the poker rooms increase um, the overall experience for the players, which is eventually one of the most important things, just the experience that you're getting when you're playing that room. There's another uh, 
actually, there's more in the promotion chapter than just that. There's discussion that you have to think, the poker management has to think about the type of promotion they're offering and, and what type of people it's going to bring in and so on. There's a couple of examples of, of that where poker rooms have had promotions and they, they actually brought in the wrong type of people relative to the clientele of the casino mm -hmm. and it, it caused some problems. Can you give an example of that? Because that, that's interesting. Well, the best example I ever saw, it, it was, uh, I'll, I'll say it was the Las Vegas Hilton poker room back around, I think 1989 was the year, but they, they came up with this idea that they'd have a promotion where the first person to play 500 hours on the graveyard shift would win a cash prize. And it didn't matter what game he played. And if more than one person hit the 500 hours at the same time, you know, the money would be split between them. It's a fairly, uh, fairly large amount of money. I forget the exact figure. It's like 100000 or something. Oh. And, and uh, they thought that this would create a couple of extra games. And the rake from these games would easily pay for this, for the promotion. And I think every low life in town showed up. And this, you know, at that time was a, it's not the, it's not the Las Vegas Hilton every morning, but it was a very, very nice casino, you know, a very, very nice, you know, high, high class clientele. So I think a lot of the, and this is just my opinion, but I think a lot of these undesirable people who they brought in ran other people out of the poker room, particularly casino guests. So this contributed, in my opinion, to this this room closing. I think the next year, and mm -hmm. just just ran all this is a poorly thought out. There was other things they did there, but this was a, a poorly thought out uh, promotion, which uh, probably uh, reduced the number of po poker games they had in the long run. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a funny example of, of this thing where that's, that's know, the best example I know yeah. of. Yeah. I'm sure on paper they thought, well, that's a great idea. But yeah, once once you like think it. about it deeper, yeah. <laughs> oh well. So uh, so people who run these poker rooms, there's there's a lot they have to think about. It's not just mm -hmm. we'll do this promotion and these people will get the money. They have to think about what other impacts it can have. You know, there's another uh, uh, topic in the book. It has to do with the. the uh, accessible rake that, that's being charged. And it also goes back to the idea of uh, the balance of luck and skill. And in Las Vegas, in the no limit, uh, small no limit hold'em games, many rooms are now raking $5 a pot or up to $5 a pot. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, rooms like the South Point, they rake $4, up to $4 a pot but then they rake an additional $2 for promotions. So the, the, the promotion money does come back to the players. And in these uh, small poker games, uh, you, even though that, that that's a very high rake, and I know in other places in the United States, the rake is even higher. And, and I know in Europe, it's probably higher still in some spots. But even at those stakes, you, you're still able to produce some winning players. There, there are people who regularly play the one-two. Uh, 
no limit home game who do win, and uh, so they become regular players and they help, and then they are there to start games and keep games going. <clears throat> now in limit hold'em, they have the same size rake, except that in a game like three six limit hold'em with a five dollar rake, first of all in in limit hold'em, the money goes into the a lot of money goes into the pot early compared to no limit hold'em. <clears throat> so more hands hit the $5 rank. Mm -hmm. And then your, your win rate, that you, assuming there's no rake, is not as high at a 3-6 limit holding game as it would be in a 1-2 no limit holding game. So this, this $5 rake is essentially assuring there are no winners in that game. Now, I do believe that there are expert players who, who, who would beat that game. If you're good enough to beat that game with that rake, well, why would you be playing it? You'd be playing a higher stakes. So you, so you have no winners in these games. And there's uh, – so you, you don't have the regular players anymore to start games and keep games going. And a good example is Bellagio, the smallest limit game that Bellagio now has is 2040. All the games they used to have below that are gone. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so I believe this, this this rake has a lot to do with it. Now, another thing is in limit hold'em, the hands play faster. So why can't you have a lower rake at limit hold'em than you do in no limit hold'em? You would still collect the same amount of overall rake because more hands would be there. So now instead of having a $5 rake, suppose you reduce the rake to $3. I think that would be enough to uh, produce some winning or regular players. I, I think in time you, 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 would, you would begin to see some of these games again. Or at least there are some card rooms around town that still have these uh, smaller stake games. Uh, South Point would be an example. They still have a 3-6 limit holding game. They get a couple of games every day. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and those games would not be destroyed. <clears throat> those games would be perpetuated. And then once you have the, those games perpetuated, players would then want to, some of them would then want to play bigger and, and, and the pyramid would start to form to where you have the some higher higher stakes games. And so I think that's a real important idea in, in this book is that you go into in these poker rooms and every game has basically the same rake where they're raking. Why is that? It's, it's you know, if a $3 rake was right, was right for like a, Three six limit holding game, maybe a four dollar rake would be right for a ten dollar limit holding game. At <clears throat> twenty forty, they have a time charge, but th there, there's no reason why a rake in, in in the one two no limit holding game has to be the same as a rake in a you know like a five ten no no limit holding game, and uh, you know and, and so on. And, and it's something that poker rooms don't do. I think they'd be better off if they did that. They would end up in the long run with more games, which would then feed into the higher stakes games. Yeah, I mean, definitely makes sense, and um, it's hard to say, hard to understand sometimes why why some of the decisions are made the way they are. Because clearly, some poker rooms are hurting the lower stakes games. But where's the benefit for them? Like, uh, I really don't don't see the point. 
they have enough dealers they have enough tables why not not only are, are they hurting the lower stake games but if you think about it I, i'm willing to bet that when you first started playing poker you played a lower stake game yeah of course and uh, that was certainly true with me and because see, see when i first began to, to play I, I lived in uh south california and only and at that time only forms of draw poker were, were legal so i basically began by playing a, a three six uh, jacks are better to open uh, draw poker game mm-hmm. and that's a roughly equivalent i would i would think with to about a two four limit hold'em game and Every thirty, and and there they only had, uh, they were only at that time when they weren't allowed to, to do a rake. You can only have time charges. So every thirty minutes, I paid fifty cents. That was the time charge. Mm-hmm. Now today, in a similar game, they take five dollars out of the pot, and some places more. Mm-hmm. So that small rake allowed me to, to play enough to where I became a regular player. Higher rake, I, I might might not have. Yeah. Well, of course, nowadays it's it's easier to play the lower stakes online. So for a lot of people, the entry point is online, and then they transition to to live poker games. Definitely something that happened uh, to me. I mean, f- I I think my first poker game. Well, actually, no. The first poker game I've played was online, and only then I, I've played. I've tried the casino, but uh, I think that's the natural way in for a lot of people nowadays of trying trying it out online and then going for the live experience. But that being said, it's a different experience, and it would be catering to a different demographic, different group of people. Because let's face it, playing online. The low stakes, it's not exactly a lot of fun. Well, the, the problem online, and, and, and again, the book doesn't cover any of this, is that because of the multi-tabling, you have too many expert players in the low stake games. <clears throat> and so whether the rake's too high, high or not, the, the recreational players are going to get quickly wiped out. Mm. And, and, and again, it's again, it goes back to the balance of, of luck and skill. I mean, if everything was equal, which it's not, but if everything was equal, you would make the same amount of money in, in a 10-20 game as you would in 10-1-2 games. But by playing 10 one two games, you only need one tenth of the bankroll. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so now, now you have a game by playing the 10 one two games where you're you're not even worried, concerned about bankroll anymore. So that helped move too many uh, good players down into these small stakes games. So so that's an issue that the online card rooms need to do. I, I know I put a proposal out few years back, one of the things I, I said was raise the rake in these small stakes games and lower the rake in the middle stakes games. And the idea was that would help get the pros out of these small stakes games. Whether that's a good idea or not is debatable, but 
Well, some sites definitely tried that idea and uh, once again got a lot of uh, fallout because people just look at it very black and white. And whenever somebody is charging them more, um, they tend not to like it. Another thing that some of the poker sites did, they actually reduced the number of uh, tables you're allowed to play on at the same time, which definitely yeah, I, I helps with the same idea. idea. Yeah. And then they reduced the number of, of multi-tabling. Of course, pro the way you defeat that is you have more than one client open. You got poker stars and you got GG poker. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. But at least poker. at least the people, the, the the recreational players who actually only play one or two tables on one site, they have to face um, less of those recreational, uh, less of those really strong expert players because they're spread around a bit more and uh, right and it, and and when they go into a game they don't see the same names all the time mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly so yeah recently actually the changes that the poker stars were were bringing out i i view them as quite positive and uh, even though there's a lot of complaints about it and and whatnot but there's always going to be that whenever there's change people are going to complain people because, don't complain yeah but if the poker room is operating correctly, they'll be looking at a lot of these things more in a long-term point of view. And sometimes, you know, sometimes to take a big step forward, you got to take a small step back. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that's what you're saying there, but it doesn't mean it's not the right decision. Yeah. Oh, well, anyway, we'll see how it's going to work out in the long run. And you know what? Reading your book, I pretty much from the first chapter, my first thought was, how much do I miss live poker? Because <laughs> with this pandemic, obviously, I haven't traveled anywhere for the live game since the whole thing started. Uh, in fact, when it started last year, um, I canceled my ticket to LA. I was supposed to go play some really nice, interesting games, but last minute I just decided, okay, I'm not going because it seems like the world's shutting down. So it was clearly a good decision at the time, but basically my my last trip didn't even happen. I still didn't get a chance to play some live poker since. And um, reading the book just clearly showed me, wow, how I miss all that buzz of what's going on, all the all the mistakes of the dealers and the mistakes of the floor managers and the obnoxious players and all the bad things, even those things I miss because uh, it creates this experience for everybody who likes to play live poker, which is more than just playing poker. You're actually socializing. You're actually enjoying yourself. It's a day, night out. And um, for that reason alone, keeping those lower stakes games alive and allowing people to get this experience and and potentially some of these people will stick around and move up to higher stakes that that would be a worthy goal for for a lot of poker rooms right and in general when people move up to higher stakes they, they don't do that well that's kind of a well-known thing yeah and and that's part you know the, the the winning regular now becomes like a recreational player mm -hmm. and, exactly yeah you know the all that's you know good for the perpetuation of poker. Absolutely.
Absolutely. And eventually it trickles up to, to the highest stakes because some of that money ends up one way or another um, floating up and um, everybody's, everybody's a winner eventually. And really everybody's a win winner because, you know, if, if, if the experience that the recreational players are getting is way more positive, uh, that's already a win for them. Because a lot of the times it's not even just about winning money. It's about how do you feel about your trips to, to the casino? And sure. like you said, it's so important to have, let's say, one out of three winning sessions. So it's important to have that luck and skill balance just right. Because if you're never winning, well, you're not. It, it, you can have the funniest guys in the world at your table and it's just a great time. But it's not so great if you're losing every day. Well, you know, this idea carries over to casinos in general. Uh, when people come to Las Vegas and they... When they come to Las Vegas and they play uh, blackjack, I mean, if they play long enough, they're going to lose all their money or craps. Mm -hmm. but, but as long as the sessions aren't too, too long, they'll have some winning sessions. And that keeps them coming back. You know, another interesting thing, it's, it's actually a footnote in, in the book, but it's 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 more important than uh, than a footnote, is poker is sort of the the only casino game that's relying on winning players to help start games and keep games going. That's not really true. The casino itself relies on winning players to start games and keep games going out of the pit. And, and, and here the winning player is the casino. Mm -hmm. The casino always has games open. And it, it's it, a lot of this stuff is, is really the same idea. I, I know in Las Vegas now there's a, a move to instead of paying three to two on blackjack, they pay six to five. Well, in, in time now probably reduce the number of blackjack games. I think some casinos have gone back to the three to two. But, uh, you know, you, you get to where you, you begin to upset the balance of luck and skill in these games. The, the games, you know, will disappear. And, and that'll happen whether it's too much luck or, or too much skill. And, and poker is just a great example of that. But when it's properly balanced, it really works well. Mm. Which of the games you wish uh, the casinos reintroduced or or at least paid a bit more attention to? Because like, obviously we all know that mostly the games that dominate um, the floors are, are usually the No Limit Hold'em, Pot Limit Omaha, and the limited games, the, the draw games, they get somewhat neglected, especially at the lower stakes. Well, losing seven card studies to me, it's a disaster. I mean, it, seven card stud is a really, really interesting game, and it's in many ways it's a richer game. I think it's the right way to put it than than hold'em because you have these up cards, mm -hmm. and the up cards. Well, well, this happens to to in hold'em as well, but not to the same degree. I mean, in the the up cards can really change the value of, of your hand. Obviously, in, in Hold'em, if you have two black aces and, and, the, fl and the flop comes like seven, eight, nine, all hearts, you, you're, the value of your hand is greatly degraded. But, but in, in stud, it, it, this is constantly happening. 
So you need to you need to constantly think on the fly, and uh, which which brings up another issue, and that is uh, the solver type strategies which have come into play. I mean, people mm-hmm. study the solver outputs, and they're not. One of the great skills of poker was to sit at a table and outthink your opponent at that moment yeah. with the solver strategies and, and the game theory optimum that a lot of that has gone away. Mm-hmm. You, just, you, you just stick to a strategy which you know is unbeatable. Mm, y- yes and no, in a way. I don't play, I don't play pot limit at Omaha, so some... Yeah. So, so, so maybe there's a lot more of that there. But. I, I think what happens is, especially in Pot Limit Omaha, I, I suppose in, in No Limit Hold'em, what you are saying is much more true, uh, just because the strategies from the, the solver outputs, let's put it this way, are easier to understand and easier to comprehend for a human, just because the solver outputs is basically a chart. How hard can it be? You just see all of the hands right in front of you. Whereas in Pot Limit Omaha, it's much more difficult to comprehend what exactly is going on uh, memorization is is not a thing because there's just way too many combinations, way too many exceptions. So you need to dig down to the first principles and understand why exactly is the solver doing what it's doing. And also a lot of people rely on bad, da- bad data. And that's something that you know very well in, in statistics. You get bad data in, you get very bad data out. It's, data it's out. just sure. always like, like, like that. And a lot of people have too much confidence in um, solver outputs without questioning the quality of those solver outputs. And that creates this funny dynamic where a lot of people are under the impression that they're playing very good because they're playing very accurately according to the solver, unknowingly playing with bad data, which actually hurts their, their win rate and allows some of the recreational players to outthink them, outsmart them, outplay them. But obviously, as a trend, that the solvers do um, give an advantage to people who who put in the work and who try to dig through the strategies. But that has always been there. There were always people who just put in a lot of a lot more work away from the tables, a lot more um, thinking about the hands, discussing the hand histories, trying to learn from their experience, and they always did well. It's just the tools changed, but yeah, the, the idea is the same. Yeah. Now, in the book, there's an appendix in the book, which is written by David Sklansky, which is 16 different games that uh, card rooms might, might want to try. And part of, part of the idea was these games would be very difficult uh, for solver type computer programs to analyze. Mm-hmm. And they would also encourage uh, more looser play earlier in the hand and so on. So that might be something that some of the poker rooms might want to experiment with a little bit. Mm. Yeah, it's always it's always a difficult task to introduce new games because of once again, people are not very open to change and a lot of people are just comfortable playing the games that they know and they don't really want to jump into anything anything new and that's that's unfortunate of course one of the games it's not exactly a game that david suggested for tournaments and it's to allow people to buy in for different amounts up to a certain amount mm-hmm. 
And uh, apparently we've gotten a couple of posts on our website where stuff like this is being tried, but, mm-hmm. but, but just to throw a number out, uh, maybe make a hundred dollars the maximum buy-in and the minimum buy-in 10. Mm-hmm. So, so you could buy in for either 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, you know, so on up to a hundred. And when you did that, you, you would, you would not have these re-entries and, and not have the rebuys and so on. But when you did this for a tournament, mm-hmm. and it would allow someone who, who made a minimum buy-in to have a have, a, have a, a pretty good score, so to speak, if they just cashed in the tournament. And uh, of course, if somebody bought in from the maximum, they might be uh, paying. You know, even if they're a very good player, might be paying too much. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a just a little interesting wrinkle that, that some carbons might want to try. Mm. How would that work, though? It's it's similar to the rebuy structure, but it, clearly different because once you're bust, you're bust, even if you bought in with 10, 10 stacks initially. Right. But um, hmm, I wonder if that doesn't create an extra edge to for for the expert players because now they're allowed to buy in with 10 stacks and they can dominate the table even from the early stages of the tournament. Well, let me read you from the book. It's the last paragraph in the book. Mm-hmm. Allow that variable buy-ins for some tournaments. Rather than rebuys or add-ons, offer tournaments where you can buy in whatever you want within reason. Small buy-ins are are taking a shot, but they also profit nicely, just sneaking into the money. Larger buy-ins are, are much more likely to cash, and the best players should buy a moderately high amount. But if they take this too far, they become suckers, given normal pay structures. Mm-hmm. Of course, David writes, do you see why after that? You can't resist that. The signature thing. All right. Yeah, it, it is interesting. It's an interesting idea. Mm, I wonder if they would try it in the online environment. It's so easy to try things out in in the online world compared to to the live casinos, and uh, that's definitely one idea. That, well, to be honest, I, I, it's hard for me to judge anything that has to do with the tournaments. I don't take, I don't play tournaments uh, almost ever. As recently, especially, I haven't played any. Even skipped all the. Um, uh, scoop poker star series which actually seemed pretty good but um yeah so it's hard for me to judge but it it does sound interesting on paper i hope i hope somebody tries it in the book there's also a a chapter on tournaments in general and uh you know again i'm I'm, I'm critical of uh, how high these these rakes have gotten and how much Money is coming out of the uh, tournaments, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm very critical of those tournaments that uh, take money out of either the players' pool or, or the entry fee to pay for the staff. And well, well first, I do think the staff has uh, has the right for a decent wage, but I'm very critical of tournaments 
where they're taking money out. And then when you cash, they say to you, would you like to leave something from staff? And that's, to me, that's like double dipping. Uh, if, if, if they're taking money out, then they shouldn't be asking you, you know, to, to leave, leave a tip. If there was one change that poker rooms would introduce based on your book, which change do you hope it would be? Like, what is the most important takeaway takeaway you hope that people um, get from Well, uh, again, it wouldn't be a change, but it would be a much better understanding of the proper balance and luck and skill. Mm-hmm. Once they understand that, it would cause a, a number of changes in the poker room. Uh, in, in, in these no-limit hold'em games, you wouldn't, uh, the, these maximum buy-ins would be reduced and mm-hmm. in uh, in the promotions the promotions would would then be much better targeted for the recreational players than, than the non uh, recreational players mm-hmm. it, it would uh, help to the, the, the poker rooms that use you know props and hosts it would make them realize that see when, when you hire a prop, in general, the, the prop makes about the same amount of money as the rake or, or time charge would be in for the highest game that he's committed to play. Mm-hmm. So, so props are basically playing rake-free, while other players are paying extra rake to make up for that. So if you're a poker, if you under, understood that, and, 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 and props are professional players. So here you got a poker room allowing people to play rake-free who are now upsetting the proper balance of luck and skill because they play too good. Mm-hmm. So, so so the poker room would make adjustments there. They would realize not to have as many props and, uh, and then they could, could lower the rake and, and so on. And and it just a lot of this stuff feed, feeds into that. So, so that, that would be my answer to your question is for them to just better... Uh, uh, now, is to better understand this concept of proper balance of luck and skill mm-hmm. and, and how it, it can work on both sides. And, but even though it can work on both sides, being the luck side as well as the skill side, it's what's happening today is the skill side. I think in general is getting, it's, the games are getting tilted too much towards the skill side, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, the specific thing to me, to me is the talking dealers. The, 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 that to me, that's the biggest problem in poker because it causes the worst issues. And so, you know, I don't see why in every poker room on the office door for every poker room manager there isn't a sign that says "dealers no extraneous talking" when in the box. I mean, obviously, a dealer has to say things like like short turn to act or pot's been raised and stuff like that. But, you know, you don't have to hear about how high his rent got or what he's going to do this weekend or what sports game he's interested in. You know, mm-hmm. you just don't need to hear any of that stuff. Yeah. I wonder... Uh, you've mentioned that the poker room manager from one of your pa- favorite poker rooms, the one that you're playing, um, was it South Point or? No, South Point. South Point. Uh, you said that he read the book. Um, 
Right. He's told me read the book. What was the feedback like? How does a poker room manager look at this work? Um, what kind of I can't discussion? Do you answer have? that completely. What he told me was that he read the book. He thought it was very good, and now he wants to study the book. And then he said, after he's done studying the book, he wanted to get together with me and talk about a few things. So, so I really can't um, answer answer that question yet. I'm really curious to see how many of the ideas are actually going to be tried by by poker rooms because it is an interesting work that you undertook here. Because obviously, a niche topic, um, useful to Everybody in the live poker scene, to be honest, it, it's useful for poker players themselves to read it. It's unlikely that a lot of poker players are are rushing to read about poker rooms because we sort of oftentimes have this divide between us and them sort of thing. We, the poker players, them, the poker room managers. But at the same time, we're all in the same boat and we can all do our little bit to make the the experience better and to make the ecology of the games better. So I do hope that the poker players listening to this also going to pick up the book. And uh, there's definitely a lot of takeaways for everybody who ever plays live poker, really. Yeah, let, let me just put an ad in. The, book, the book's called Card Rooms, Everything Bad and How to Make Them Better. I have a book right here, but uh, books on Amazon, the, the cover will be different than this mm -hmm. cover. Right. We actually well, have a better cover than this is just a preliminary cover. Right. We, we're definitely going to put some links in the description. So anybody's interested, you guys can uh, can find a link to the book um, or just find it on Amazon. Uh, we're going to have the, the yeah, title and everything. So it's yeah, going it to be, be there. You know, if what I'm saying is right in this book, it, it helps. It, it, it should help everybody associated with a card. You know, this is from the managers and the floor people to the chip runners, and not only the players, but but people you know on the rail watching the games. It'll affect all of them. Yeah, and, and some of these fixes, I I think are easy to do in the sense that, like ending must move games, is something that's easy to do. Players, some players will object to it. You know, mm. Upper management will have to to realize that. You know, that would probably be my, my second thing besides the talking dealers is one of the things we point out in the game is that what these must-move games do is they, they create lists and they break games. And when, especially later at night, when you have a, a poker game with a seat open, every now and then someone will wander in from the pit. And I've noticed this at all stakes, small stakes, all the way up to very high stakes. And, uh, you know, for that stake, they, they, they often lose a lot of money. And that money will go to all the players at the, at the table. It just doesn't go to the experts. And so it, it now allows some of your weaker regulars to have money to come back to the poker room on the slow nights and, uh, and play. So... It's it's hard to connect the two, but you walk into a poker room, let, let's say on a Tuesday night when, when things are slow, and, and and you think, well, you know, if they didn't have must moon games here, there are, there might be more games in this poker room now. That, that's a hard thing to connect, but I think it's accurate. 
And so that, that's explained in the book as, as yeah. to why that's the case. Yeah, the whole chapter about the must moves is, is really interesting. And uh, I think we discussed uh, a lot about the must moves the first time we, we had right, a conversation we went into that, you, uh, 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 podcast. Um, definitely good insights in this chapter. And uh, it's hard to say for me, how do I feel about the must moves and whether my opinion changed. But there's definitely a lot of negatives there definitely a lot of negatives with with the whole thing and the politics of it and the mismanagement of it and the mistakes from the floors um, uh, running the lists and uh, you know people get to the main game ahead of um, ahead of their turn and, and vice versa you know and then there's a lot of negativity surrounding like why did I have to go this must move now is much better I'd rather stay here and all that and all that unnecessary stuff. And um, of course, another the other side of the coin, especially at the higher stakes, is whenever there is no must move, there's going to be so much uh, jostling for position of players trying to switch tables back and forth and back and forth. Right, and if you don't have must move, you're going to have transfer lists. Yeah. And, and then, you know, you have to read out the favoritism. Because right. that thing has to be fair, and unfortunately, it's not. I don't know if it's unfortunate that it's not, because like it's human nature, obviously, to to treat some players better if if they treat you better, uh, and not only financially. You know, just some players are just naturally um, have better relationship with the floors and stuff, and they usually get some sort of special treatment, but. Well, it just, needs, just, to be, just, it needs to be straightened by the book, I think, for, yeah, for in order to avoid any problems. Yeah, just you, you raised a point, which is in the book. Uh, on the floor, you have four people who, who make decisions for, for the game. And then you have the brushes. Mm-hmm. And the brushes is the person who maintains the list right. and gets people into the game. Now, some poker rooms have the brushes also making decisions. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I think the accusation of real favoritism can, can come about. Because mm-hmm. if I'm a player who tips the brush a lot, and now he comes and makes a decision, uh, that's a lot different than if a floor person comes and makes a decision. Right. And I normally don't have that much interaction with the floor person. So, you know, the, but, but that, that is an issue. That's, uh, mm. You know, a lot of these things, they're not perfect. You know, if must-move games are wrong, it will... It will create some other issues if you stop them, yeah. which have Absolutely. to be handled. Absolutely. Oh, well, but the, the poker scene is going to keep evolving. I mean, obviously, over the last, uh, well, all the time, actually, it's changing. Year to year, there are some changes in, in uh, how they're run, what games are catered to, to the players and the, the structures, the maximum buy-ins, etc. I feel like a lot of rooms are still trying to find what's best, hopefully trying to find what's best for the long term. I mean, sometimes it looks like they really don't care. Uh, they're just trying to uh, maximize the immediate profit um, just to get their personal bonus, and, and that's about it. And, and another thing that I emphasize in the book is if, if you are a poker room manager, you need to know how to run your room. Uh, you're not supposed to be having meetings with players constantly where one player tells you to do it one way and another player tells you to do it in another way. 
you're supposed to understand how these things work. Mm. Of course, you could say that I'm writing a book <laughs> doing just that, telling them how, how, you know, how they should run the room. But at least I'm trying to, to give them the underlying reasons as to why certain decisions are, are correct and other, mm. other, other uh, decisions and policies they have are not correct. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, I hope that most of the poker room managers are going to pick up your book. And um, I hope that a lot of poker players are going to pick it up as well, because eventually... Oh, I forgot to, uh, to mention this. I should have said yeah. this right at the beginning, but let, let me mention it here. If you work in poker room management, uh, either on Twitter or on our website, send me a direct message. And I will happily send you a PDF file of the book at, at, at no charge. Mm. Well, that's a fantastic offer. And uh, I hope people hear it and uh, will we'll definitely mention it in the description and, and, and uh, obviously any social media channels that I can, can reach out to. So, yeah, I hope this makes an impact. There are a lot of great ideas here. And um, any any plans for the next book? No. I don't even know if there'll ever be a next book. I've gotten okay. older. Uh, I, right now, I'm out of ideas and stuff. All right. Well, I know Dave Slancy's talking about doing some more stuff. Okay. Yeah, he's been busy because uh, he's been uh, quite productive with his books. And um, anyway, it's it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Mason. It's uh, so many yeah, it's insights, so many good ideas. Okay, good. Hope we do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we still haven't touched upon that subject, which we had a little uh, chat about in the two plus two forums, uh, uh, and we psychology. talked about it before the mental game, and yeah, the psychology, mental game. and all that. I would be really interested in having that discussion with you, but obviously, you know, it, it's it's a whole different topic, and we better leave it for another time, and uh, perhaps have a round three with you. Uh, okay, that sounds good. At some point, fantastic. So, Mason, thank you once again, and. Um, yeah, I hope to see you see you again for another conversation. All right, thank you for having me. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the description. And of course, I'd highly appreciate if you subscribe, click like, spread the word about the podcast. Also, if you'd like to receive a regular newsletter with my key takeaways about each episode, go ahead and subscribe to it on runchexpodcast.com. That's R-U-N-C-H-U-K-S podcast.com. I write those myself. I take it seriously and I really enjoy the interaction with the readers. So I hope you'll sign up uh, and I'll be back for you next time. Thank you.